So we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 1 to 17 today. It says, And setting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And some people brought him a paralytic, lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or, say, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they th said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And I was thinking about this week, and it's kind of remarkable in a sense that humanity has survived as long as we have, uh, given the dangers that are in our world. Um, I was shocked to learn some of the dangers in our world. There's a substance that's called batractic toxin that could kill a human being with the amount of two grains of salt. Two grains of salt could kill a human being. Um, there's another substance called botulinum toxin, which is um, something that can get into food when people get botulism. Um, this could kill a person if he or she sniffed 13 billionths of a gram. 13 billionths of a gram that if you sniffed it, it could kill you. There's also a lot of other everyday items that are toxic that could potentially kill us or make us sick, uh, especially if we ate a lot of them. For example, uh, potatoes. You know, a ripe potato is perfectly safe, but a potato that's not ripe is actually poisonous. Um, and there are people who have eaten, you know, so many raw potatoes or, you know, unripe uh, potatoes that they died from it. Uh, tomatoes are safe to eat, but the leaves of a tomato plant are not safe to eat. Asparagus is safe to eat, but the berries of an asparagus plant are poisonous. Uh, rhubarb is safe to eat, but the leaves are toxic. Um, mushrooms, there's some mushrooms that are safe to eat, others that will kill you. Um, there's a, a plant called the grass pea that's grown many, in many areas in like sub-Saharan Africa and other areas that are subject to drought. And it's a very popular, um, popular plant because you know, it can withstand basically no water. Um, and so the people have planted these plants. And if you, you have it once in a while, it's not going to hurt you. But if you eat it regularly, like in a drought situation, and eat it regularly for about three months, it can cause a condition called latherism that can make basically the bottom half of your body paralyzed. 
Uh, there's so many different things in our world that are dangerous. And you got to wonder, like, uh, how did we come to realize these things? Uh, another one is the cashew. Um, I didn't realize that a cashew is part of a, a cashew fruit. And surrounding a cashew is this substance called anartic acid. And it has the same uh, active material, urshio, um, that's in poison ivy. And so if you ate a raw cashew, it could make you very sick or even kill you. Um, you may have seen in stores things that are advertised as raw cashews. They're not actually raw cashews. They actually steam to get that urshio out. But you got to wonder, like, how did people come up with this? Um, like, oh, Johnny got really sick and he died when he ate a cashew, but let's try cooking it up and see what happens. Or Larry died when he ate this mushroom, but this mushroom looks a little bit different. Let's try this one out. I don't know how people came up with these things, that some things are poisonous and some things are not poisonous. Um, each year in the United States, about 100,000 people die from poisoning. Most of the time it's accidental poisoning. Um, but we live in a world that's dangerous. Uh, there was a man named Rodney Marks. In 2000, he was walking between buildings. He was a researcher in Antarctica. And as he was walking between the buildings, he started to feel really strange. Started to have trouble breathing, felt really tired, kind of achy. Um, he thought maybe he was just getting the flu or whatnot. And so he decided he was going to try to sleep it off. And so goes to sleep. He wakes up. He's vomiting blood. Um, his eyes are so sensitive. He has to wear sunglasses even though the sun isn't out. His, you know, his joints are just on fire. Uh, he's just kind of in this agitated state, and so he keeps going back to the, the, hosp or the, the station doctor. And eventually they gave him this antipsychotic to just kind of calm him down, uh, and about 15 minutes after they gave it to him, he died. Then, you know, they couldn't bring his body back to the United States for a while because of the weather, so they preserved his body, then finally brought it back. They did an autopsy, and they found that he had and an extraordinary amount of methanol in his body. Uh, to this day, nobody has any idea how he was poisoned with this. He didn't have any enemies. He had a good life. He wasn't suicidal. But somehow this methanol got in his body. There's a lake in um, Africa, Congo, called Lake Nysos. And uh, this lake is interesting that it's on top of a crater of a, of a volcano. And one particular night, um, this, this lake was actually called the Good Lake because it had clean water. But one night, it wasn't such a good lake. Uh, one particular night in 1986, May of 1986, something happened beneath the surface. And this huge fountain of water shot up into the air about 300 feet in the air. And with it, this kind of ginormous pocket of carbon monoxide came up from the water and just spread throughout the area. Within minutes, it was in the middle of the night, and within minutes, hundreds of people just who were asleep never woke up. 2000, uh, there was an Illinois scientist named William Walsh, and he was studying the strands of hair from the body of a famous, uh, the famous composer Ludwig van Beethoven. Interesting to, thing to do, but everybody has their hobby, I guess. But he was studying, as he was studying these strands of hair, he found that Beethoven had 100 times the amount of normal lead in the body. Um, and he determined after some research that that was perhaps the cause of his death. Uh, he died at age 57, and he probably died of lead poisoning. And they traced it back to 
this hot spring that he used to visit to, for relaxation and just kind of like a ginormous hot tub. He used to go there all the time. It was filled with lead. And it's interesting that this thing that you know, he thought was rejuvenating him, giving him strength, was actually killing him and led to his death. We live in a dangerous world. There's so many things in our world that can harm us or even can turn deadly. Spiritually speaking, I think the same thing is true. There's an equivalent to poison, a poison that sometimes destroys quickly, but other times it takes a lifetime for its effect to be realized. And this deadly poison is the poison of religion, or maybe better termed performance-based religion. That is religion that's focused more on performance than the presence of God. That's focused more on rules than a relationship. And there's some people who are devoted to this poison. Uh, we see people in the scriptures like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. It's all about the performance. It's not about a relationship with God. It's all about the performance. It's about rules and how we look to other people. And so there's some people who are devoted to this poison but I think the reality is we all have a little poison inside of us. You know, you think about poisons in our world, and there's few of us, hopefully none of us, would ever die of arsenic poisoning. But if we were all tested for arsenic, we'd probably all have a little bit of arsenic in our bodies, even though it's not going to kill us. And the same thing is true for just about any other poison that's in the environment. You know, lead. You know, enough lead could kill us, but we all probably have a little bit of lead in our body. So there's a poison inside of us, and as believers, I think that we have that poison inside of us that can sometimes rear its ugly head. And so I think we need to recognize this poison of religion, performance-based religion, and as we recognize it, we can apply the antidote, which is the gospel, and we can keep this religion from um, crushing us under its tyranny. So in this passage, we learn a few things about religion. Uh, the first thing is that sometimes we can become so religious that we no longer rejoice in grace. We no longer rejoice in grace. It's really quite a remarkable passage as Matthew, who of course is the author of this book, is kind of sharing his story of grace, how he came to know Jesus. And there's a few things that are remarkable about this passage. The first thing is that Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors in the ancient world were not popular, as they're not popular today, but even more so. Uh, they were not popular because they were Jews who were working for the Romans and collecting money from the, Ro from the Jews to give to the Romans. And the Jews had this you know, belief that you know, the Romans were kind of occupying their country. And so tax collectors were often seen as traitors. Not only that, they were notoriously unjust. Um, we don't know exactly what kind of tax collector Matthew was. He might have been a customs officer. Um, but kind of general tax collectors would often collect like 30 or 40 percent uh, for Rome. That is, Rome would require that they collect 30 or 40 percent of what someone made. And then the tax collector would add on to that, and that would be kind of what they got from it. So if the, if the tax that was required was 40% from Rome, they might add an extra 10% that they would keep themselves. So tax collectors were hated. They were unclean. They were people that nobody wanted to be around. There's another thing that's interesting about this passage. Usually when somebody would want to become a disciple, it would, the, the relationship was such that they would approach a rabbi and say, can I follow you? 
But what we see in this passage kind of turns everything on its head. First of all, Matthew is not the one that we would expect to be a disciple of a great rabbi. He, he just wouldn't be. He's a tax collector. He's unclean. He's not uh, trained in the Jewish law. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He doesn't follow the law like everyone else does. Also, we think about Matthew. He would have never dreamed of asking Jesus to follow after him. I mean, he would have thought to himself, there's no way that this great rabbi is going to allow me to follow after him. Knowing who I am, knowing the things that I've done, there's no way he's going to allow me to follow after him. But Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus tells Matthew, follow after me. It's a beautiful story of grace. And yet, what do the religious leaders do? They're perplexed. They're perhaps even infuriated. This doesn't make sense. We've been following after the scriptures. We fast twice a week. We do all of these religious things. Why would you choose a tax collector to follow after you? When all of these other people are available, why would you choose someone like that? Religious people think that God owes them something. Religious people rejoice in their accomplishments. They don't rejoice in grace. As believers, what do we rejoice in? Do we rejoice in our accomplishments or do we rejoice in the gospel? Do we rejoice that our names are, hidden, are, are written in heaven? Do we rejoice when God gives other believers opportunities, privileges? Or do we think to ourselves, that should be me? Religious people scoff at grace. And we can all have that kind of religious attitude where we put our stock in our accomplishments rather than in what Christ has done. And when we do so, we don't appreciate grace. We don't rejoice in grace. The second thing we see in this passage is that we can become so religious that we aren't welcoming. We can become so religious that we aren't welcoming. Uh, we look at this story and we think about the ministry of Jesus up until this point, And we've been tracking through Matthew for a while. And Jesus says some really harsh things. He talks about the narrow road, the wide road, and how uh, the road to heaven is narrow. Uh, he talks about the dangers of self-deception. He talks about the Sermon on the Mount. And many of the things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount are incredibly challenging. He says that, our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says that we should not only commit, not commit adultery, but shouldn't lust ever to someone who's not our spouse. It says that we shouldn't, should not only not murder someone else, but we shouldn't become so angry that we want to murder someone else. Uh, that we should not only love those who love us, but love our enemies as well. So Jesus has this incredibly high calling, incredibly difficult saying so to speak he does not like he just says okay you're fine the way you are just come along he he has some pretty harsh demands and i think the miracle in this passage passage is not just that jesus calls matthew but that matthew says yes i mean think about matthew think about who he was he's a tax collector which probably meant he was incredibly wealthy he may have had to work hard to get to this position to get to a point where he has all of this money coming in, uh, where he has all of these kind of rich friends. He's someone who had, it, had a lot going for him. You think about the person and the disciple that we looked at last week in the previous passage uh, that gives excuses why he can't follow after Christ. And yet Matthew hears the call of Jesus, and he just leaves his whole life behind. He's not going back to tax collecting anymore. He just leaves that life behind. It's incredible 
that Jesus, while he has incredibly harsh demands, he says some really hard, harsh things, he calls a tax collector, and the tax collector says, yeah, I'll follow after you. Then they go, Jesus goes to the home of Matthew and says that sinners and tax collectors were hanging out there, spending time with him. Jesus was eating with them, which in that culture showed acceptance. What does this tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about Jesus that while he was incredibly holy, the Son of God, and had incredibly high demands of his would-be disciples, nevertheless, sinners and tax collectors are drawn to him. I think it means that he's incredibly loving and welcoming. That he's devoted to truth. We've seen that throughout Matthew. But he's also devoted to grace. That what kind of a person, that though he is so holy and so righteous, attracts people who are broken, who are sinners. It's an incredible picture of grace. Religious people, on the other hand, are not welcoming. Religious people say things like the Pharisee says, why, was, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's probably kind of an ironic question. It's probably, why does your teacher, like if he's really a teacher from God, why would he eat with people like this? And notice that they asked Jesus' disciples this. Uh, it may be that they're afraid to ask Jesus directly, or it may be that they don't even want to set foot in the home of Matthew, the tax collector. Because it would make him unclean. They don't want to enter into his home. And so perhaps his disciples are outside and perhaps they're asking the disciples, why does your teacher eat with people like that? Religious people create boundaries, create walls to keep other people out. And yet Jesus hears what these, ta- what these Pharisees say, and they say those who are, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And really when it comes down to us, who is sick? All of us are sick. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they are perhaps even more sick than the tax collector, than the sinners. So Jesus came for all of us, but religious people For religious people, a relationship with God becomes a mark of spiritual superiority. And if you want to keep that feeling of spiritual superiority, you have to keep other people out. It's like, oh, I have this relationship with God. I do all these wonderful things. This other sinner over there, they're not part of the family. They're not part of God's people. So religious people keep other people out. It's like my relationship with God makes me better than other people. And yet, the invitation that Christ offers is to everyone, to all who would come, that his table is open to everyone. It's an invitation that's not earned, but it's open to all who come. And people who are changed by the gospel realize that, realize that we haven't done anything to earn a seat at God's table, but that he invites us freely by his grace. And so we invite others to come to that table. That we long for others to come and taste of the feast that we've tasted of. So we can become so religious that we are no longer welcoming. We can also become so religious that we criticize rather than love. That our first inclination is criticism rather than love and rejoicing what God has done. Notice the incredible things that, God, that has happened in this passage. The kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of man. There's a paralytic that's healed. Jesus is healing 
uh, people. He's, he's forgiving sins. He's calling sinners to repentance. It's an incredible scene of what God is doing, but what is the response of the religious leaders? The response is criticism. Why is he doing it like that? Why is he inviting these types of people in? Why is he saying this? Why is he saying that your sins are forgiving? Later, you know, he says, they're saying, well, why is he healing on the Sabbath? Why is God working in this way? For religious people, oftentimes when God moves, they criticize. I remember several years ago, um, I went to a conference for college students called Passion down in Atlanta. Um, and it was just it, one of the highlights uh, of my life spiritually of just seeing other people who are passionate about Jesus and singing to him with you know 20,000 plus other college students. It was just an incredible experience. And I remember one particular night, there was a salvation message that was given. It's incredibly powerful, and uh, there were dozens, perhaps hundreds of people, college students, that decided that they wanted to follow after Jesus. And I remember leaving that place, and I was headed back to my hotel, and I was just kind of on a spiritual high. I was just, it was just awesome to see all these things that, that God was doing. And my dad was a volunteer there, and just seeing him um, have the opportunity to pray with students and just uh, you could just sense the, the presence of God there. And on the way back to my hotel, I remember encountering this individual standing in the middle of the walkway where all these students are going back to their hotels. And he's just yelling all of these, these criticisms of the Passion Conference. You know, oh, they do this and the, this bad and that bad and the other thing bad. And, 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 you know, they're leading people astray. And I remember walking by and I was just so angry that, you know, God had just moved in this incredible way that people had left the kingdom of darkness and entered into the kingdom of light. And here is a religious person and all they can do is criticize what God has done. There's always people like that. There's always a tendency for us to do that. Because we have that poison of religion, that poison of sin inside of our souls. Last week, or a few weeks ago, we talked about the Asbury Revival and the, moment, the movement of God there. And of course, when that happened, there were plenty of people who were critical of it. Uh, theologian Richard Blackaby puts it this way. Every revival in history has had its critics usually within the church, because they disagreed with how God was doing it. Isn't that the case? Sometimes religious people disagree with the way that God is moving. And so religious people come to church and they criticize. They criticize the music or the message, or maybe they criticize other people that come to the church, or they criticize other people's kids, they criticize other people's motives, uh, that maybe the other people aren't genuine, that they're not really seeking the Lord. And their first inclination is criticism. And criticism can be deadly. Because the truth is, the enemy is evil, but the enemy is unified. The enemy is seeking to destroy our church, every church. He's seeking to destroy the bride of Christ. And so he'll do everything that he can, and he is unified with all the forces of hell to bring us down. And the sad reality is sometimes, I think all he has to do is call his legion of demons together and say, get some popcorn, let's watch them destroy themselves. And it's the sad reality that sometimes we devour ourselves. We don't need Satan to devour us, Satan to destroy us. Sometimes we devour ourselves. 
because we criticize one another. We're in a war, and eternity is at stake, and so we need to eradicate the plague of criticism from the church and send it back to hell where it belongs. I'm not talking about being discerning. I'm not talking about being wise. I'm talking about this religious tendency to criticize everything and everyone. That's not of God. God calls us to love those around us. Galatians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Religious people criticize. People changed by the gospel love. Jesus tells the religious leaders in verse 13, he says, Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The word translated mercy in the Greek is, the, is, is a translation from the Septuagint of the Hebrew word uh, for uh, hesed or steadfast love. And looking back in the book of Hosea, um, the context of Hosea where that's quoted from um, is the people of God were very religious people. They were involved in a lot of activity. Uh, they were building altars. They were offering sacrifices. They were constructing idols. But their activity was marked by unfaithfulness. There, there was a violence to their action. They were defrauding those who were vulnerable. And, and, and even God uses, the, through the prophet, he uses graphic language to describe them as a whore, being sexually unfaithful, so to speak. That they have forsaken God and gone after idols. But they think that God is going to be pleased with them because they have altars, they have sacrifices. They do all these religious rituals. Jesus says, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire you to dwell in love, steadfast love. That really at the heart of what the law is, it's about loving God, loving people. You can do all the sacrifices in the world, and if you're doing them with the wrong heart, it doesn't mean anything. Something that's really not even pleasing to God at all. And so Jesus says, learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He wants us to dwell in love. And then he goes on and gives an illustration of uh, people who are changed in the gospel. They're not simply engaged in religious activity. They're engaged with love. And, um, you know, it's kind of a new way of seeing things, a new way of living. That it's not like, you know, adding something to the law. It's a new way of living. It's kind of getting to the heart of what the law really intended. People who are changed by the gospel realize that we don't have any ground to criticize others. We've all been saved by grace. We are all broken and desperately in need of Jesus. We don't have any right to cast a stone on someone else. We've all been forgiven. Jesus says, remember in John, he says that what should we be known for? We should be known for our love. Love for God and love for those around us. We can sometimes become so religious that we criticize rather than love. Finally, we can become so religious that we lack joy. Religious people are often joyless people. The disciples of John come to ask Jesus, why did we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, Jesus isn't saying here in this passage that fasting is, is bad. He's not saying you should never fast. But why doesn't Jesus' disciples fast? Why don't they fast? They don't fast because 
Basically, when you're fasting, this is what you're, in essence, saying. You're saying, more than I need food, more than I need this sustenance of food to sustain me, I need the presence of Christ to, to sustain me. So why don't they fast? They don't fast because the bread of heaven is with them. They don't need to fast. Jesus is there with them. And so there'll be time, there were times perhaps before and after when they would fast, but they don't need to fast when Jesus is with them. Uh, I've gone on uh, various diets before. Probably should be going on one right now. But you're thinking about kind of the diets I've gone on. I've done many different ones, but there was one day where I definitively was not dieting. And that was my wedding day. Why didn't I diet on my wedding day? Because it was a celebration. It wasn't a time where I'm just going to, oh, let's count out my calories. I mean, there could be times before that. There could be times after that. But my wedding day was not the day for it. It was a day for celebrating. And I think the same thing is true in this passage. Jesus is saying, there's times for fasting when I'm gone. But today is a day of celebrating because I'm with you. The presence of God is among you. Religious people don't enjoy the presence of God. Religious people don't enjoy the gifts of God. Rather than enjoy the Christ and the gifts that Christ offers, in the back of their minds they think Christ wants to make them miserable, to take away their joy. And so they're focused on religious rituals. They're focused on their own performance. And sometimes it's like when you're doing really well, when you feel like you've lived up to your own standards, then you feel on the top of the world. But when you're failing yourself, failing your own standards, then you're in kind of this pit of despair and depression. And it's like we're focused on the wrong things. We're focused on ritual. We're focused on earning, God, earning our salvation, focused on our own performance, rather than enjoying what Christ has given to us. Christ come that we might have life, that we might have it abundantly. And so we need to enjoy what God has given to us, most, most importantly, enjoying the gift that Christ is to us and his presence with us. And secondarily, enjoying the gifts that he has given us. Religious people don't do that. Religious people look at themselves. And here's the reality. When we're looking at ourselves, there's a lot of ugliness in there, in all of our hearts. But when we look to Christ and forget about ourselves, that's when we experience change. That's when we experience joy, as he changes our hearts. As we bask in his love and forgiveness of us, and we walk away new people. Religion is a poison can rear its head at any moment in our hearts. This poison can cause us to scoff at grace, can cause us to exclude others, can cause us to criticize rather than to love, and it could cause us to miss out on the joy that Christ has for us. But praise the Lord, there's an antidote for the poison of religion, and that is the blood of Calvary. The blood of Calvary is the antidote for the poison of religion. And when we look at the cross, we see that all of us have received grace, all of us grace that we did not earn, that we're all welcomed into the family of God, that we're all loved unconditionally in Christ, and that our future is with God, and that changes everything. We don't have to live in that religious performance. We don't have to live in that state anymore. We can live in light of the gospel. As you know, as, as you know, uh, St. Patrick's Day is coming up on Friday. Um, I thought I'd read the story of uh, St. Patrick that kind of illustrates this change that the gospel 
uh, has wrought in, in their hearts. Uh, John W. Court, in his book, People Whose Faith Got Them Into Trouble, shares his story. He says, we know about the real St. Patrick, or his name Magnus Succidus Patricius, because he wrote a record of his life called Confessions. As a young boy, Patrick lived a comfortable life near an English coastal city where his father was a deacon. But at the age of 16, his comfortable life unraveled. Irish pirates attacked his village, abducting Patrick, many of the household servants. After arriving in Ireland, Patrick was sold as a slave to a Druid tribal chieftain who forced Patrick to work with a herd of pigs. In the midst of the squalor of pig filth, God began to transform Patrick's heart. In his confessions, he wrote, I was 16 and knew not the true God, but in a strange land the Lord opened my unbelieving eyes and I was converted. Patrick became convinced that the kidnapping and homesickness were actually opportunities to know Christ better. He said, anything that happens to me, whether pleasant or distasteful, I ought to accept with serenity, giving thanks to God, who never disappoints. Knowing that this, this serenity didn't come from his own strength, Patrick wrote, now I understand that it was the fervent spirit praying within me. He served for a slave for six years, as a slave for six years. Then he escaped, boarded a boat, and found his way back home. At long last, he was on, a British, on British soil, warmly embraced by his family and his community. In his own mind, Patrick was done with Ireland for good. According to Patrick, it is not in my nature to show divine mercy toward the very ones who once enslaved me. But once again, God would change Patrick's heart. Partially through a dramatic dream, Patrick knew that God had called him to return to Ireland. Not as a slave, but as a herald of the gospel. His family and friends were understandably horrified at his decision. Many friends tried to stop my mission, he wrote. They said, why does this fellow waste himself among dangerous enemies who don't even know God? Despite these objections, in AD 432, Patrick used his own money to purchase a boat and sail back to Ireland. Patrick spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel in Ireland, watching many people come to Christ. He also passionately defended the human rights of slaves. Besides his confession, his only other written work is the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, a scathing protest sent to King Caroticus and his soldiers after they raided a village, slaughtering the men and selling the women into slavery. For the rest of his life, Patrick would remain captivated by the grace of God. In his confessions, he wrote, And I am certain of this. I was a dumb stone lying squashed in the mud. The mighty and merciful God came and dug me out set me on the top of the wall. Therefore I praise him and ought to render him something for his wonderful benefits to me both now and in eternity. The gospel is the antidote for religion. The gospel doesn't change us in that it makes us more religious people, that we just do more religious tasks to try to honor God. It makes us loving people, people who maybe even go back to love our enemies, people who have hurt us what happened with Patrick. That's what happens when the gospel takes hold of our hearts. So as we go forward throughout this week, let's live in the gospel. Let's not live in the rat race of religion. Getting on that hamster wheel, trying to please God, always focused on ourselves, criticizing others. Let's look to Christ in the light of his gospel and allow him to transform us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are the embodiment of truth and grace. That while you're infinitely holy, while you call us to a road 
of discipleship that isn't always easy. You're also a God that's incredibly loving and welcoming. You're the God who eats with sinners, tax collectors, that you invite any who would come to you to experience your grace. Lord, help us to be people that are marked by your gospel. Help us to be people who love you with all of our hearts. Help us to be people who always realize the depth from which you've saved us. Help us to be people who welcome those around us. People who rejoice in what you've done. People who love rather than criticize. <coughs> Lord, you've been so good to us. Lord, help us never to forget that. Help us never to move beyond your gospel. But help it to, uh, us, help it to inform everything that we do each and every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.